In the event that you were shocked and felt that this may have been an extremely hard week on your pastor and he has aged dramatically, and assumed a new super, uh, superhero costume. Relax, I am not he. He has had a busy week and he's been away, but he'll resume his ministry in the pulpit next Sunday, Easter Sunday. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and open the Word of God with you this morning. And uh, I want you to open your text with me. The text is Psalm 24. If you're using a Bible that you find on the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find Psalm 24 on page 862. So you want to open that. We're going to listen to it together. Perhaps you've read this psalm during the week already. I've talked to a few friends who tell me they actually read the text in advance, which is the idea of publishing them in advance. And perhaps you already have acquainted yourself with the message of this, uh, this psalm. Psalm 24, which extols the power and the holiness and ultimately the merciful grace of God, was written by the psalmist David, and as journalists today would say, it has a backstory. And so I want to set the scene as we contemplate this psalm together this morning. On this Palm Sunday, I, I assume you know why we call this Palm Sunday. Now I realize Baptists have not been uh, really strong in following the calendar year of the church and noting the various occasions when various kinds of uh, events in history or uh, celebrations of the church are noted. We've been known as more the plain people. But uh, it is significant to note, as we will this week and as we will next week, uh, a particularly important day in God's plan for a fallen world and in the life of His Son, Jesus. So I want to set this scene for you as we consider the psalm. We're going to listen to it together, but it's backstory. King Saul is dead, defeated by the Philistines in a bloody battle, and his well, his days as the king of Israel were were essentially numbered at any rate because God had already rejected him. You'll recall for a, being a disobedient king, a bad king, not a godly and obedient king at all. So the nation of Israel was uh, was embattled, fractured, really. And without a king, and at the end of a long and bloody civil war, the young man David was at last anointed king over a newly united Israel. He'd set up his court in the little town of Hebron, in the south of Judah, and he reigned there from that location for about seven years. But, but David realized that uh, a new and a unified Israel needed a new capital, and so he had set out to establish the city of Jerusalem as the new capital city. 
One of the first things, you remember the story, I imagine, one of the first things that David desired to do was to bring to Jerusalem the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant is a testimony of God's presence among his people. Uh, You remember it had been built under the guidance of Moses with very specific specifications by God himself, and it had been built to be placed in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then thereafter, wherever Israel traveled through its wilderness wanderings, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant went with them. It was the place, it was the place where the presence of God was among them. Now, as the story goes on, and I'm abridging it considerably, uh, for many years the ark of God had been forgotten by Israel. Uh, It was kept in a small town west of Jerusalem and essentially forgotten. But now, in the newly established fortress city of Jerusalem, the new capital of this newly unified nation, David decides that it's time to bring the ark of God to the new capital city. And it's that decision that sets the scene for this psalm that we're going to read together. Most most Bible scholars are in agreement that this psalm, David wrote this psalm as a celebratory antiphonal chorus uh, to be sung by the priests on the day that at last they would carry the ark of God on their shoulders across a number of miles of countryside and at last up the steep hill and into the gates of the city of Jerusalem, the city of Zion. And for that occasion, which was a memorable occasion, uh, David wrote, this psalm that we know as Psalm 24. And uh, it was a time of great, great rejoicing among the people of Israel to have this event happen. Uh, And so they sing. Uh, They sing to each other. They sing back and forth to each other in this journey uh, of celebration. And they even sing to the gates of the city, calling on the gates of the city and the doors of the city to open wide and receive their king, God. Now, try to picture that. Try, try to get a scene like that in your mind, a great celebration, a great event like that in your mind. Uh, as, as you listen to the psalm, pay attention to how the psalm begins and then how the glory of God unfolds as the psalm unfolds. I would, I would tell you this this morning. As I began to think about this psalm in preparation for today, I, uh, I had a bit of a different take on it. And ultimately, through the course of that preparation, I began to see it in somewhat a different light, particularly the way it begins and how it sets the scene for what the psalm is really all about. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas, he established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? 
who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord, vindication from God his Savior, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. So lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? You can hear the singers singing back and forth to each other with questions and answers in antiphonal style as this great, great rejoicing uh, breaks out among them. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. You saw how it began. I think the psalmist recognizes what he has to say and what they're all about there. He recognizes that we must first be reminded of who God is. His great power, His sovereignty. And so begins the psalm in verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In two short statements, the songwriter makes us Understand the majesty and exalted nature of the Lord, of God. He's a creator of all that is. He made it. He's transcendent. He's above all that he made. He's sovereign by right of creation. He is the God of power and holiness he made the earth and everything in it. He owns it. The mountains, the forest, the seas, the trees, the animals there, uh, the, everything that we would call the natural resources, the ores and the, the oil and the gold and the jewels, all of it, it's his. He made it. He's the creator and sovereign Lord over every person, all who live in it. Every man, every woman, every child, every one of us. He made us. We're his. Well, this is the God of glory. And we must see him to catch what, what's going to be said next. The heavens declare the glory of God. It is his creation, isn't it? The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament displays the work of his fingers. So the psalm has begun now by fixing our attention on God's great power and glory. And, and let me say now, this is what I had to do at this point in the psalm. Let's not miss the significant import of that beginning. Because... There's an ominous tone that's introduced here. 
David takes care to inform us uh, of two things, two important things about this God. He is unapproachable in his glory. And he is dangerous in his holiness. David introduces that at first. And this is made evident in the two rhetorical questions that confront us in verse 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? That is, who is qualified to approach him in all his glory? Unapproachable. Is he? Uh, Closing a letter to his young friend Timothy. You read this in 1 Timothy 6. Paul was bringing the letter to a close and, and the Apostle Paul suddenly breaks, as it were, into song... And a a glorious doxology just pours out of his pen. God, the blessed and unique sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives, listen, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, To him be honor and eternal power forever. Amen. Well, the underlying idea of Paul is that that of God's unimaginable glory, the transcendence of his nature, the purity of his holiness, the blinding radiance which made him unapproachable to man, He dwells in unapproachable light. Let me say that every man or woman or young person, every man in this fallen world and in his condition of sinfulness is utterly removed from the presence of this God. More than that, This God is dangerous in his holiness. The question is, who can stand, that is, survive? Who can survive in his holy place? This holy God is to be feared, says David. That's not a popular view in our culture, is it? A lot of places, even in the church today, it's not a popular view. To think of God is to be feared. Is God to be feared? That was a fast answer. (laughs) Is he to be feared? Well, you know, David, who wrote it, David knows the history of the people of Israel as they interacted with this God who had entered into a covenant relationship with them. He had initiated that. And David knew that there were plenty of reasons to be afraid of him. You remember, go back to Exodus. You remember when Moses asked to see God 
and to see God's glory. God made himself evident to Moses, but out of mercy and compassion, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Later on in Exodus, when God actually descended on Mount Sinai, in the smoke and the fire and the thunder and the lightning to deliver his commandments to Moses and the people. The people of Israel were warned to remain at a great distance from the mountain lest they perish. God was there. When the people, Exodus twenty eighteen says, when the people saw the thunder and the lightning, And saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and they begged Moses, do not have God speak to us or we will die. The writer of the Hebrews Hebrews described that same scene later on. And in talking about it, he, he wrote it this way, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So how dangerous is this high and holy God? Well, he's so dangerous that the Ark of the Covenant, the object of this psalm, and the place where God dwelt amongst his people could itself be an object of death because that's where God's presence was. In the ark, you'll remember this, in the ark there were two, the two tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments of God were etched. And those tablets represented the testimony of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the people. Here God had announced that he would dwell among them in that ark in all his glory. And he gave very severe instructions about how the ark could be handled. On one, uh, one terrifying occasion that we read about in 1 Samuel 7, when the ark had been regained from its brief period of captivity by their arch enemies, the Philistines, Israel had regained the ark and, uh, and they had it in their possession once more And a number of Israelites defied God's instruction and attempted to do what? To look into the ark. And we read there in 1 Samuel 7, but God struck down some of the men, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And they asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, and live? Is he dangerous? You know, it seems to be, incidentally, that that terrified response of the people on that occasion that David remembered. And he includes that very question here in Psalm 24. Let me say that before such a God, sinful people are in imminent danger. 
Their predicament is one of grave peril facing the judgment of this holy God. In a state of sinfulness, I say it to this congregation today, because I don't know many of you. In a state of sinfulness and rejection of God's grace, every man, woman, child, every man takes his life in his hands in the presence of God. God loves holiness. He infinitely loves what is right and good and pure, and he cannot tolerate the presence of sin. He cannot look upon evil with any approval. When he sees it, he's disposed to punish it, which is why an unholy person cannot approach him cannot stand, survive in his presence. Even for an instant, he would be destroyed in that instant. Well then, you say, that's not a very happy beginning, who then can possibly approach and relate to such a God? Well, the question is answered in verse 4. And it's a frightening answer, frankly. For it would seem that no person could possibly meet the qualifications to stand in the presence of a holy God. The answer, who can stand there? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. It requires absolute purity and absolute holiness to stand in the presence of God. Unless we misunderstand, the, the requirements are outlined here for us, as we just read, in these four marks of holiness. It demands outward purity, clean hands, outward purity. In all of our actions, in all of our behaviors, infinitely pure and holy. It demands inner purity, clean hearts, purity in all of our thoughts and all of our motivations. And he says it demands forsaking all that is false for the pure pursuit of God. And finally, he says it demands lips that are pure, that is, always and only speaking the truth in love. Now, all of these are marks of holiness. And the Scripture clearly declares that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So it's a frightening answer, isn't it, in that sense? Well, what is it about, let's rehearse, what is it about God that makes Him unapproachable and even terrifying? He's a God of perfect holiness. And sinful man cannot stand in his presence. And he's a God of absolute justice. Every sinful person stands condemned by that justice. All have sinned and fall short of the glory 
of this God. And moreover, God has declared his righteous wrath against all sin and against all sinful men. The wrath of God, Romans, you know what Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and do so by their own wickedness. I have to say to you that we do no kindness by failing to warn people of the wrath of God. Now, perhaps this is the only God that you've ever known. Some of you. It's the only God you've ever known. Well, having gotten this far into the psalm, you might ask. After portraying the, this God as unapproachable in his glory and dangerous in his holiness... Well, why is David celebrating? Why are the people of the psalm rejoicing in all of this? Now, listen. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, and let me quickly say, I'm so delighted, so pleased that you're here. You're welcome here. I want you to come back again. But this morning, if you're not a Christian and you know you have sinned against this holy God and you recognize the desperate condition that you're in as you face him, I I want you to listen closely to what comes next. Well, the psalm at verse 5 quickly turns and quickly points to our relief. Verse 5 turns our attention to blessing, to vindication, to salvation. It's, it's, a, it's a great turnabout from what appears to be only fear and hopelessness and despair. It's telling us, where the psalm goes now, it's telling us that there is one who not only bears all of the marks of holiness, but who opens wide the gates to all others who will look to him for salvation. There is one. Who can stand? Who can approach? It would seem that none of us could, but there is one. Here in this song of celebration... He is presented as the king of glory. Verse 7 resounds with with this good news. The, The voices of all of the priests and all of the people who are bringing the ark back into the capital city just burst forth now. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. They're looking now up the hill at the city that the king of glory may come in. And immediately, the singers raise the question, who is this king of glory? Who is this one that can answer 
for the holiness of God. Who is this one that offers us hope? Who holds salvation in his hand? Who makes it possible for sinful people to approach and to stand in the merciful and loving presence of a holy God? Who is this king of glory? There is no more important question that could be asked. Now David would become a great king, ruling the nation of Israel with integrity of heart and with skillful hands as we read in Psalm 78. God established him in his kingdom with his promise, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But he, David, himself a sinful man, would not be this king of glory. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a foreshadowing of another who would come, fully meeting the requirements of holiness. He would be a king, yes, but he would also be a suffering servant. A servant who would heal the breach between God and man. He would be a man who would be the solution to the sin that separates and puts enmity between God and man. He would bear our sorrows and he would take our sins upon himself and satisfy God's just wrath with his own sacrificial death. You know, the ark and the tabernacle and all the sacrifices and the celebrations and the feasts in the Old Testament were always pointing to something greater. They gave God's people in the Old Covenant a glimpse of what God would one day do to make complete and lasting atonement for the sin that separates us from him. One day, one day, the king of glory will appear. That was the message continuously. Now I want you to fast forward with me to another text. It's the scripture that Joel read to us earlier. It's a text often read on Palm Sunday. And if you're, if you're looking at, at, a, at a Bible that you've got in the pew, you're going to find this text, Matthew 21, on page 1531. 1,500, a lot of pages in the Bible. Matthew 21. It's a thousand years later. The fallen world is still awaiting fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 24. And now here in Matthew's gospel, we see this scene unfold. I'm not going to rehearse the whole scene. You listen to it read, you're familiar with it, probably, most of you. Jesus and his disciples approaching Jerusalem. It's, it's an ominous time. He's warned them of that. But they're approaching Jerusalem. The king is coming to his city. And he sends some of his disciples on ahead and he says, go and talk to these people in, in, the, in the town over here because they have a donkey and I need it. Bring it here. So he bring, they bring the donkey to him, a donkey to him. And they put some cloaks on the donkey and he sits on the donkey 
And that little procession starts toward the city of Jerusalem. And, and a crowd gathers, of course, and uh, they begin to shout and they begin to do other things as, as Jesus approaches. A thousand years before, the ark with the presence of the unapproachable God had been carried up a hill into Jerusalem. And now comes Jesus, God in human flesh, carried up the very same hill into the very same city as king on the back of a donkey. Imagine a king on a donkey. There's a humble and surprising entrance of a king announcing his kingdom to his people. But that was his intent. You know that. That was his intent. When some of the followers in the crowd uh, began to shout, Hosanna to the son of David, and others were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus acknowledges their praise affirming that he is indeed the promised king of glory, the long-awaited savior of the world. We, we speak of this day, this today, this Sunday before Easter as Palm Sunday. And we refer to this event as the triumphal entry. Now, this is a little curious that it's called that. And, and let me quickly say, triumphal entry is not in the biblical text. It's an addition, a heading that the editors of almost all the Bibles that are published put over this section. Well, there's irony here, the way God works. In what way was this a triumphal entry of a king? No marching army. Uh, no wealthy caravan, no choirs or musicians or singers or any of that. Only a donkey ride and a few palm fronds strewn along the way. As the day proceeded, that day, it would appear that the events were spinning out of his control. The praise that had accompanied him when, uh, when he appeared, soon are quite clearly a very shallow celebration. The religious leaders, uh, offended by uh, the raucous reception he got, demanded that he rebuke those who called him king. Now, some of you know that the truth about this triumphal entry would soon be evident. As he rode up that hill into Jerusalem, his destination was the cross. A king on a donkey, a king on a cross. Was this the king of glory? Surely was. But he still had work to do. And that work must be done on a cross. The barrier that separates 
sinful men from a holy God had to be breached. It had to be torn down. Only a perfect sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice that satisfied God's holiness and his justice could accomplish that. Jesus alone met all of the qualifications. And he was sent by the Father in fulfillment of his promise to be that sacrifice. On that cross, it would be God himself doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Nothing could you do or could I do to approach this holy God, to stand in his presence, to survive there without the sacrifice of a man who lived a perfect life of holiness. Only Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in complete righteousness. Only he can ascend that holy hill. Only only Jesus could make us holy. He would be the one to break down the barrier that kept sinful men like us from fellowship with God. So the God who was unapproachable, as we began this song, unapproachable by sinful men, now invites us into his glorious presence through his son Jesus, who took the guilt and the penalty of our sin upon himself and by his death on a cross and by his resurrection from death, which we'll celebrate next Sunday, offers us peace with God. Life eternal in the very presence of God. Did you listen to the call to worship that was read in your hearing few moments ago. I hadn't thought about it before, but as I heard Joel reading it, it struck me. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, this one who lives in unapproachable light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so it is that that this God is not only holy and just, he's also merciful, forgiving, full of grace in his provision of salvation and life through his son Jesus, who is the king of glory. How do we respond to a psalm like this? It went in a direction I hadn't expected, but it went in a direction that was necessary for it to. How do we respond? How do you respond to a psalm like this? Well, if you're a Christian, remember that the primary reason God reveals his truth to us is to transform our lives. If we profess to know the truth as we read it, 
but refuse to let it affect the way we live, then we're guilty of hypocrisy, aren't we? If God has revealed to us His glory, what are we going to do about it, Christians, Hinson? If God's ultimate goal for all things is His own glory, then we should live to glorify Him, should we not? Will that change your life? Whether you live or eat or drink, said the Apostle Paul, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This psalm should, should bring us to our knees before this God and then to our feet to move out into the world to bring glory to God. What does it mean to bring glory to God? Well, it, it simply means to bring His, His innate glory to light, to expose it, to reveal it, to make it known, it's to put God on display in your life and show him off for who he is and what he's done. And, and I would just say that this Easter week, particularly perhaps, even in our culture, this Easter week should give you many opportunities to do that. I can see the conversations happening now. Your conversations people that don't know this king of glory. And I pray that you'll do that. But once more, if you are not a Christian this morning, if you've never come to Christ and received by faith his offer of cleansing from your sin, I appeal to you this morning, I appeal to you this morning, to recognize the perilous situation you're in, the imminent danger that you face under God's right and just condemnation. And I urge you to listen right now to the Spirit of God who is speaking to your heart and to throw yourself on His mercy. Receive His gift of grace in Christ Jesus. You know, there are those here this morning, if that's you, there are others here this morning who would so much love to talk with you about that, how you could do that. Uh, I'll be down here at the end of the service if you'd like to talk to me. At the doors there will be pastors and others, perhaps a Christian friend who brought you today or whom you're with, someone who cares about your soul and your need. Talk to them. And they'll tell you how you can come to know this glorious God, this King of glory, Jesus Christ, what he's done for you today. You know, there's no greater need you face. There is no greater decision you could make. And there's no greater joy that you could experience. Will you pray with me? Father, your glory and majesty overwhelm us. But your mercy and grace shown, shown to us so brilliantly in Christ Jesus fill our hearts with joy and with peace this morning. Thank you, Father, for providing these for such as we. In the name of your Son, Jesus the King, we pray. Amen.